And now, ladies and gentlemen, right to your host of Down the Garden Path, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing. Welcome to Down the Garden Path, where each week we discuss down-to-earth tips and advice while doing our best to help you seasonally manage your garden. designers and gardeners, we believe it's important and possible to have great gardens, which are sustainable and low maintenance, and we want to help you make it happen. That's right. And with the hustle and bustle of May behind us, the almost, almost. <laughs> the month of June promises warmer weather and time to relax. But don't let that keep you out of the garden. There's plenty to be done. On this episode of Down the Garden Path, we share the tips, tricks, do's, and don'ts for your June garden to help you spend less time working in it and more time enjoying it. What are you looking forward to in this June garden? We'd love to hear from you. Write us at downthegardenpathpodcast at hotmail.com. That's right. That's right. So it's almost June. I can't believe that May is days of from like it's two days and it's over and every may is always such a huge time uh in the landscape and horticultural industry everybody's looking for designs and looking for getting jobs completed or started to install everyone wants to take advantage of that warm weather and every year as busy as it is it always seems to fly by like i can't even believe that that it's the end of may i always say in the garden centers it's just like enjoy it now well, it's all busy and everything's out because in half a month, it's it's, over. it's gone and it's over and everyone's away and it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. This I think this has been one of my that like the best maze in a long time because it's been cooler and slower. Like I, you know, I feel like the last few years we went right from winter coats to tank tops. Like you know what I mean? Like there was no, and here we're still wearing a sweater in the morning, and the the flowering trees, the lot, everything has lasted and bloomed, and the bulbs, everything's bloomed longer than usual. Uh, um, you know, perennials have been a little slower to get going, which is okay. Um, mm. You know, I so I feel like this May has been like a blessing, really. It has temperature-wise, I've really enjoyed it too. It's been warm, uh, like today. It was like you said, cooler morning, but now it's a nice twenty-four degrees where we are here. It's sunny out, and like you said, everything is lasting. The trees were blooming for a number of weeks, and uh, what seemed much much longer than previous years. Yeah, because like you said, we just get that burst of heat, and it just speeds right through. Especially all of our fall bulbs, right? There was yeah. our spring flowering bulbs. They love that cooler weather. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we've been able to enjoy them, which is great. Yeah. Which is great. So, so Did that you plant- has been nice. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has been nice. Did you end up planting or uh, have some clients who planted some spring flowering bulbs in their garden that you got to enjoy? Or did you plant any? Yeah, I well, I had daffodils primarily, and they went early that, that spring, you know, that April when I was away, that like hot week, they all played poof. <laughs> 
So I oh, came yes. home, they were still blooming. <laughs> when I came home from Spain, they were still blooming. Um, but now my alliums are blooming. So they are, and they are long anyway. So, and every year when they're blooming, I'm like, I need more of them. I need more of them, <laughs> you know? And so I, I mean, I, and it shows you how much of a purple garden I have. So my catmint is blooming, my purple um, alliums are blooming. And then I have my, um, my uh, variegated irises are about to bloom. Mm. And uh, so there, so I'm like, wow, I've just got some purple going on here. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I definitely need to get more alliums. You know, I just, I, I highly recommend those to everybody because they just last so much longer. Their foliage isn't, isn't as a, a, obtrusive as some of the, like the tulip foliage and the, yeah. daff- I mean, daffodil is not too bad, but you know, the squirrels don't dig them up. No critters bother them because they're a fl- technically a flowering onion. And uh, and even when they're finished blooming, like they still have like such an interesting shape to them that they they don't, you know, you don't have to run out there right away. Right. And get rid of them. So uh, and some crazy people will spray paint them purple or yellow or gold <laughs> or whatever and put and keep them in their garden. So so I highly recommend everybody to to consider alliums over some of those more High maintenance plants, high maintenance bulbs. <laughs> yes, I have to echo your love of alliums. I planted a whole bunch for uh, one of my maintenance clients just last fall, and they're just starting to break open now. Oh, and they're good. absolutely stunning, and they're growing across the road from me. And it's just such a joy to go out and see them. As we talk about things that are starting to bloom, you mentioned your variegated iris. Mm-hmm. So don't forget if you have a, if especially the white and green one, uh, go out and take a smell as they open. It smells like that grape Kool-Aid package the second yes. you open it. I yes. wait every year for that. <laughs> well, I planted <laughs> I planted two more, so now I have them in three spots. So uh, so now, um, and I think they're opening at different stages. So woohoo! I prolonged the Kool-Aid. I'm yeah. going to tell that to clients too. <laughs> grape Kool-Aid for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So. Yes, it is such a lovely smell. Well. Uh, What's happening in everybody else's June garden? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, let us know. You can write us at down the garden path podcast at hotmail.com. What is your June gardening plans or what are some of your summer plans? Where are you listening from? We love to hear from all That's of you. Right. That's right. Karen um, has written in mm-hmm. and says, hello. May has been good weather. Japanese beetles, what to do? Just wanting to get prepared. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, Karen, June uh, is a good time to get prepared for your Japanese beetles. Uh, so starting out with our lawn, I guess, in our June. Yeah, um, let's talk, let's talk about lawn care. So yeah, so that's per- timely, timely question, Karen. Exactly, exactly. And we're just tailing or on the end of if you use any of your nematodes uh, or even some of your uh, grub be gone uh, the bacteria that's in the grub be gone I want to say it's a bacillus thuringiensis of a type and I forget the subspecies but the grubs are still their fleshy grub stage but they're very going to shortly going to be uh, pupating and becoming that little hard chrysalis that the nematodes and that bacteria aren't going to attack. So we've got a couple more weeks now where, or if as long as your soil is above 10 degrees uh, Celsius or 10 to 12 degrees Celsius, that you can apply it down and still do some control. 
of your white grubs. If you know you're inundated with them, definitely still put it down. Um, but know that if you've got lots of them, they are a little bit more adult. Uh, and they do take a little bit of extra time or a little bit of a stronger dose. So your nematodes and your uh, bacillus, your grub be gone. I think ortho makes it, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, give Just give them a little bit of a, an extra bolt or a second application to really get in there. Okay. Outside of that, they're going to take the two to three weeks to get into Canada Day and the 4th of July. And that's when they're going to start to slowly come out of the ground there, Karen. So right about the beginning of July is where if you've missed your uh, applying and killing them while they're grubs and you get to the beetle stage, we can start to use our pheromone traps uh, to hang them up. Remember, out in the away from your plants that they want to eat, uh, they usually have about a 30 to 35 foot radius all the way around or 70 foot diameter. And you want to put them away so that that area overlaps the plants, but it's not sitting beside a plant. So out in the lawn at the side of a house where that radius can overlap on all sides. And then it'll draw them in and then you just get rid of them and mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. If you're in the States, I know you guys have a lot more chemical options than we do. So you might be going, yeah, Matt, I'm just going to whip out this chemical and wipe them yeah. off <laughs> the face of the earth. But <laughs> that's an option, too, we don't have. Uh, if you do want to, I always recommend doing the trap, especially in Canada, do the trap, but also things like Endol or a pyrethrin-based spray. Because the trap will draw them all in, but you have always have like one or two or five lingerers on the edges. So let them draw into the trap, catch the bulk of them, and then just go around once every two weeks um, because that's just how often it can be sprayed. And just hit the colonies. Just like find that couple of leaves and just hit the, the spray them directly and kill the five stragglers or the 10 stragglers. Oh, Don't okay. apply to absolutely everything, but just hit those stragglers. So for Can- Canadians, you can use a little bit of a, a chemical boost there. Mm-hmm. And um, back to nematodes just for a minute. So water. So the one thing is the bad timing with this time to do the nematodes, and it looks like we're gonna we're heading into a bit of a drought. Um, is that you really really water is the key? You know, I know lots of people have said I've tried nematodes, they didn't work. Well, it's because you didn't do it right. <laughs> so you need yeah. to literally soak. You have to picture them. The nematodes are swimmers, so they need lots of water. They're not going to crawl through your soil to get to kill the grubs. So they need the soil to be very wet prior to you uh, spraying the nematodes. And after you spray the nematodes, you need to um, to also keep watering. So that's something to really remember that they're swimmers. So we need that it, those, the lawn definitely needs to be wet. Um, and, you know, and just hosing it down, you know, uh, you know, 10 minutes before you spray the nematodes is, is not, I know I've done that myself when I'm lazy and running out of time, (laughs) but they're much more effective if you really, really, um, get that lawn nice and sopping wet. Yeah. Um, I always recommend a good 30 to 45 minutes of just give it a nice thorough law, um, watering. Let it get down to about a, an inch or so in the ground. Depending on your pressure, you may need it a little bit more than 30 to 45 minutes, but get that water right into the ground so that they can swim. Then don't let that dry out. 
Mm-hmm. And just like you said, but one of the tricks we can do too, to kind of fend off that heat, not too kind of, but to fend off that heat is we're getting into warmer weather, especially with a, a possible drought coming. As we see the humid X become a regular in the forecast, um, that humidity being forecast, it's time to start raising your mower. So your grass blades will grow, keeping them at about three and a half, three inches Keep them taller and they'll shade their growing tips. And it's imagine when you go to the park, you know, you go to like the a public park or, you know, we have Lakeview Park here uh, in our city. And you always, it's the middle of summer and you put your hands in the grass as you sit down and it's always cool, but it's still like 25 degrees out. That's mm. that cooling effect of that grass. It's keeping it cool and active. And that will cause or protect the soil and the, sorry, the water in the soil from being affected by the sun and the wind and keep your plants happy. So make sure that with this drought coming, uh, raise your mower, cut a little higher and uh, protect all that water you're putting down for those nematodes and keep mm-hmm. that grass green. Yeah. Excellent. So Excellent. Hope- what about fertilizing about that? Mads? If we just, if we stay with lawn for two more minutes, like what about fertilizing? Um, yeah. Fertilizing is now is good. a good time. Now is perfect. So if you didn't end up fertilizing just yet, or perhaps you're still cooler, maybe you're a little further north uh, than the GTA here, you're still going to be getting into some warmer temperatures as our grass is starting to grow. So if you haven't fertilized for your spring yet, you can definitely still fertilize with your spring. Depends on what you're doing with your lawn. If you've got a healthy, thick, active lawn, I would recommend going organic, doing a little top dressing of some nice active compost, uh, maybe like an inoculant compost or just something that's very bioactive in uh, or is known to be active or good quality compost to feed the soil and then go organic. So it breaks down. It gives you a longer feed. If you mm-hmm. are trying to get some really quick growth to repair and fill in some spots, you can go with this synthetic way. So it's not the organic, but it's the, you know, the, just the classic synthetic ready, very quickly available uh, lawn fertilizer. I okay. think of like Scott's and CIL and there are a lot of other private brands that are synthetic and classic. They usually will have the very high nitrogen numbers and then the organics will have very low numbers. So organic might be 437. And right now for the spring, your synthetic might be 31012 kind of thing. So okay. yeah, if you're repairing, go quick. Uh, the synthetic just gives you a shorter burst of food. It'll green it up, but then it goes back to relying on whatever else is in the ground. Right. Yeah. Right. So lots of time to fertilize. Yeah. Now I know people, one of the first things that you see people do in the spring, usually April is the top dressing, like get out there with their top dresser. Um, but it's not just April, like early or March, you know, you can, can you, we can do that now too, to kind of, that's another way to f- feed the lawn. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yep. I have a client. We're about to uh, do some top dressing in the next week or two and uh, just refortify and reseed that lawn. So, yeah, if you haven't done that yet, again, just applying a nice top dressing of compost will give you a good uh, little bit of food and feed that soil underneath. Compost, I always recommend as your top dressing because it's going to feed the microorganisms in the soil, we can't, I mean, you could, but it'd be very laborious and expensive to mm-hmm. lift up all the sod and rework the soil underneath. But if you're feeding the soil microorganisms, they're going to do it for you. Mm-hmm. Top dressing. I see a lot of people, or I have seen a lot of people in the past, uh, you know, they top dress and then they'll come to me or call me and say, 
I top dressed and it's all going yellow. What did I do? And they usually will put down a heavier soil, like a triple mix or just a flat out topsoil that they've gotten from, you know, a, a nearby farmer's field. That's too heavy, a little bit too heavy, but also they put it down too thick. Remember, you only need like an eighth to a quarter of an inch of soil to top dress. It's like a dusting, really. It's right? almost just like a dusting. It's, you shouldn't see big things like a sea of soil. Yeah, and then right. the seed just goes on top, and you're going to keep it evenly moist and nice and cool to bring it on. And mm. just a tip, if you have a small space, you know, a couple square feet, you could get a sheet of burlap. It acts as kind of like a shade cloth. So mm. that jute twine, that soft burlap with the little squares in it, acts as kind of like a little greenhouse. You can just peg it down into the, using some tent pegs or some landscape staples, uh, and you don't want to press it against the seed, but it'll create, like if you just lift it above the soil, it allows air and sun to penetrate, but still protects from that drying wind and the sun and keeps the moisture in there to help the seed. And then after about 14 days or two weeks, you just pop it off when you see some good growth starting to go and uh, get it in there. Or you could leave it on for the full 28 days and uh, have a nice full lawn once it pops up and it'll all straighten out and green up a little bit more as well. So yeah, lots Excellent. of stuff you can still do with your lawn getting into June. And as we get into the summer, um, summer, summer, like into July, July in the garden, that's when we're going to start doing our first summer fertilizer. And that'll be just the same fertilizer that we use in the uh, spring as well. Okay, okay. So yeah, so that's good advice. And, you know, if the lawns go dormant, the lawns go dormant, yep. you know, that's not, it's not a reflection on you. It's not a reflection. I mean, it just, they need to, it needs to rest. And once we get rain and cool, you know, the temperatures normalize, you know, it will green up again. So I think people kind of t panic a little bit when it, when it starts to go dormant. They um, do because it goes that brown defensively, right? Yeah. 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 And so the, the key there is if it does go dormant, just stay off of it. In the first week or so when it's dormant, she's still kind of spongy. But once we get into three, four, five weeks of dormancy, then it can become very uh, vulnerable to being damaged and right. uh, crushed. Because the soil is now just so dry that you'll yeah. damage the lawn. Yeah. 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 Um, so the other topic that seems to be, you know, May, we think about for May and it kind of carries a bit over into June, especially considering how cool May has been, is um, our veggie and fruit gardens, right? That's um, right? You know, I know we haven't planted, I don't know about how your balcony's doing. I've purchased some plants, some veggie plants, and I have a couple more to um, to purchase. Uh and I bought the compost for my garden, but nothing's planted yet because we've, we had some late frost. We had some late frost last week. Yeah, we did. And I'm right where Here you are. Here in the GTA. I realize that our listeners are kind of from all over. So some of you are probably uh, already harvesting fruit and vegetables. Yes. I don't know. But here in, here in the, you know, general Toronto area, um, we are still haven't planted. <laughs> yeah, it's been very cool and windy at night uh, the last couple of nights too. Yeah, I'm right where you are. I've got some small tomatoes and some other veggies started. Uh, I've started to, just this weekend, I planted out some uh, corn and my uh, beet seeds I set out on the balcony. Uh, I directly sow those ones so they, they're just best that way. So I didn't start those, but I've got some tomatoes and a couple peppers and some small onions and chives that are just waiting to go out there. I put them out during the day because it's nice and warm, but 
Yeah, I haven't quite planted them yet. Yeah. So what did you end up buying for some veggies? What are you growing this year? I got some grape tomatoes and I got um, a bush cucumber, which I've never had before. And then I bumped into one of the ladies from my garden club and she's got like a dwarf. Yeah, she had some really unique things. Um um, actually, you know what? I think she might be the, she might, I got a pepper. Sorry. She has the, she has the bush cucumber, which I'm not familiar with. And um, she has some really unique um, dwarf, uh, you know, d- dwarf tomatoes. Um, so I'm really excited to to see what she has. She started them all from seed and uh, she's got like a little, um, they have a, um, a container, like a shipping container that they turned into a greenhouse. Um, yeah, her and her partner. So, um, so yeah, so she's a member of the Pickering Garden Club. And so she had some things for sale. So I, she sent me her website, and I'm keen to kind of go over there and Pickering. She's in Pickering. So I'm, I'm kind of keen to go over and check out she's got some unique things. So and she said, you know, people are looking for smaller, like smaller for containers for smaller spaces. And, and I totally agree. You know, um, yeah. uh, people are still wanting to do veggie gardens, but they're wanting, you know, them to just get the maximize their space. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So that's I've got uh, a couple of those micro tomatoes, the red robin. Um, okay. And I'm about to start again some plants. So I'll have to share them with you. Send oh, one your way. So okay. you can have a micro tomato too. And yes. that, that was what I was looking for in my corn. Um, I found an heirloom variety of corn. Uh, and it only grows about four feet tall. It's perfect for containers. Um, it gives me really sweet corn, uh, really small, but very sweet uh, cobs of corn. So, yeah, small. I agree with her. Very small yeah. plants, small spaces. So wonder how many, how much corn could come from one container, do you think? Mine, I'm. what did I, my size of my container, I think they were 16 inches square. And they say to plant them about uh seven and nine inches apart. So I think what did I do? I think I put in nine seeds per container and I have three seeds. So I'm going to have about 27 plants. Three containers, you mean? Sorry, three containers and then uh, 27 plants in between the three containers. Uh, And we'll see how it grows. This is my first time. I'm just having fun doing it. So theoretically, though, I should get about, if all of them went, I'd get about two, maybe three cobs per uh plant okay my 60 to 70 crops maybe depends so i'll have to play and see how it goes yeah Uh, but you are planting the seed i'm planting just straight from the my corn kernel yep nice little dry corn seed interesting interesting well that is good i'm looking forward to it yeah if you're Um, looking for as well just i'm thinking our compact uh, berries. Remember the bushel and berry series of plants are out there. So they're made for containers. And we've got thornless raspberries, blueberries that are self-pollinating because a lot of them need uh, partners to cross-pollinate. Um, and there's a few different, I'm thinking raspberries, blueberries. I think there's blackberries. And I think one or two other ones that have been recently introduced, but they're a great bushel and berry series for containers in small spaces. All these plants only grow about two by two, three by three. Okay. I've had the blueberry perpetua. It actually blooms and fruits blueberries twice out on my balcony for the last uh, couple of years. This winter, unfortunately, she didn't make it, uh, uh, but that's okay. They're 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 everywhere. Okay. What's it called? The blueberry. 
Yeah, Bushel and Berry. Oh, sorry. Bushel and Berry is a series, but mine is called Perpetua. Ah. Perpetua. So like a perpetuate, but uh, okay. stop at the U. Bushel <laughs> or, and, and add an A. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Carl has asked us about, uh, hi, Joanne and Matt, have either of you ever tried to grow grapes or strawberries? Two very different size plants, Carl. <laughs> Any tips or tricks for those fruits? So let's just start with strawberries, Matt, since we were talking about berries. Yeah. Um, there's a f- there's two different kinds of strawberries, right? Yeah. So we'll often see our, if we're thinking classic red strawberries, we'll see our June-bearing strawberries and then our ever-bearing strawberries. So the June-bearing, just like June, it says in the title, they basically mature and they fruit all sometime in June. Um, right usually mid to the end of June and when we get some sun and then you can go out and usually go pick your own strawberries or whatever. The everbearing is great because you can plant them and they basically, all they do is flower and fruit, flower and fruit, flower and fruit. So they will start as early as you can find them all the way through until frost. And then on top of that, they're perennial. So they'll basically just go to sleep, okay. wake back up with some warm weather and just continue to fruit and berry and fruit and berry. Okay. So sometimes I see them in hanging baskets. So would those mm-hmm. just be the June berry th- bearing then in the hanging basket? Or do you think the um, ever bearing also come in hanging baskets? I've seen both, but I more often see the uh, ever bearing than the June. Oh. Um, yeah. Because you have a nice, usually I'll see them in like a red hanging basket uh, to yeah. look like a strawberry. Yeah. And then they just billow over and the berries just kind of dangle or the runners jump out of the pot and yeah okay so i often see the ever bearing ones yes yeah, okay. just a tip for your berries if you're looking for your strawberry plants the white flowering i've been told by the growers the white flowering tend to be a little bit sweeter for the berries because you'll see a red pink and white flower and you'll usually just see them all mixed all right. together so check for okay. a white flowering if you like them a little sweeter Wine flowering. Interesting. And Carl asking about grapes, which are a much bigger deal, right? And in the sense that you need to have the space, you know, a big arbor or a big um, structure in order to. um, And I feel like they are as tricky as it is to to get the strawberries before the animal, before the birds get (laughs) the strawberries. I think when it comes to grapes, it's even harder, right? To get them. I agree. They're just. Yeah beautiful little jewels sitting there and they just get taken but carl yeah to answer your question i have never i've never tried grapes i don't know if you you're joanne shaking her head no no i haven't but (laughs) i have had many plenty of clients who've regretted it who've like just said it was just it just didn't work and there was just two the birds got them and it was so much work and once you plant them it they are invasive like they do you know, um, they do spread quite aggressively. And then you've also got the birds, you know, eating the seeds and popping them into other areas of the yard and neighbors and stuff. So it's unless you're in the well, even in the country, I don't think it's a good idea. So love to hear if there's anybody else who does it successfully. But um, yeah, I have not. And I know several clients who've had, you know, uh, buyer's remorse. <laughs> there we go. So yeah, it's always something I've thought of interesting to try i'd like to i always kind of think of like growing in them on like an espalier yeah uh, or like in a like container that. or something like that yeah. um as we're just talking about fruits the other thing that i find exciting going back to um your client who said the small spaces there are a lot of um apples being um bred 
the mm. I immediately think of the Sentinel series. And these are fruiting apples. There are one or two in there, and I'm going to forget their cultivar names, that are self-fruiting. But a lot of them, like uh, again, like normal apples, they like to cross-pollinate. But these trees only grow 10 feet tall and 2 feet wide. So they're basically little columns. And then you can keep them shorter if you wanted to 5 Ooh. by 2 and they're great for containers. I would put them in a bigger nursery container um, or larger pot. But yeah, they'll fruit for you. Um, I've heard people in the trials, they had them in containers. They've had them in places like balconies and decks and they flowered and fruited and uh, did well. So I think uh, Red Sentinel, Columnar Apple is one of them. And they produce full-size apples. There's a gold, a red, a red gold. Uh, and then there's a couple other ones. I want to say emerald that is self-pollinating. But just another shout out, if you're interested in apples, but you don't have a whole lot of space, you know what? You could make a beautiful little container wall with a few apples in them and move them around and yeah, yeah kind of get creative yeah, that way too. So. For sure, for sure. And we can give a <laughs> shout out to Susan, right, Gary? Susan's show, monthly show yes. here Actually, on tomorrow uh, morning. Reality Radio 101. Yes, it's on tomorrow. Oh, perfect. There you, you go. Tell her we talked about her. I will. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and and see if she's got some more information about the dwarf apples, uh, these tiny trees. And her show again is called? Uh, her show is the Urban Forestry Radio Show. And that is on t- on last Tuesday of each month. And the starting time for that is, I believe, 1 to 2 p.m. 1 to 2 p.m. Perfect. So shout out for Susan. Um, and you can check out her website at orchardpeople.com. And she's got all her past shows and, and all her, her information about fruit trees. So, um, yeah. So... Do, 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 do. A so general do, question. Sorry, go ahead. Don't go right in. Uh, Mike is asking about what is the best time to water my plants, morning, afternoon, or evening. Um, I guess I, my goal is when you have time, Mike. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, ultimately, Mike, wh- whenever you, you get time. I think the key there is just avoiding just being the person who just sits there and waters the leaves all the time, especially if you have to water later in the evening, because you get the free moisture. The sun is going down. uh, The wind may be calming down a bit as well. uh, And then you get the water that just kind of sits there. So if you're watering leaves, that's the chance for um, diseases and other things like mildews and rusts to take advantage, to go through their whole life cycle, which some species just need four hours of free moisture to do. And then you come back and water the next night and you're spreading spores. So if you're doing it later in the evening or at night, and if you have to, you have to, no worries. I, I've done it too at clients' house. I've just been there in the evening. That was the only time I could get there and I had to water for them. Just mm-hmm. try to water the soil as best you can. Feed mm-hmm. those roots, water those roots, and keep the foliage dry as possible. Watering as well, if you've got an in-ground sprinkler system and maybe you have some you know, mildew issues or disease issues, but you're using your sprinkler at night versus you know, first thing in the morning, like yeah. you know, 4.35, 6 o'clock, uh, that might be an issue too. You've given them free moisture. You're doing it at night so you can see it or so that you know it goes off. But if you put it in the morning, that would be better for your plants mm. for uh, disease issues. But other than that, yeah, Mike, it's kind of like Joanne said, you know, whenever it, you can do it, they're yeah. going to love it. But uh, 
later in the day or closer to the evening, try to do it at the ground level only just mm-hmm. to avoid that yeah. kind of issue. Yeah. yeah. Speaking as later in the evening, as we get later in the show, I'm going to stop and just say thank you, everybody, for joining us here live on Reality Radio 101. And thank you as well if you're listening uh, at home or in the car. We enjoy all the people who, and appreciate all the people who are listening to just the podcast as well. I'm Matthew Dressing here with my co-host and co-author, Joanne Shaw, and you're listening to Down the Garden Path. Joanne and I enjoy hosting Down the Garden Path each week, bringing you interesting and relevant topics to help you achieve a great garden. We learn right along with you from our research and from the wonderful guests that join us here on the show. Don't forget, you can spend more time with us down the garden path. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Down the Garden Path Podcast is our handle there. You can also find us on all of your favorite podcast providers. And while you're there, please hit that subscribe button to be notified of new content. And please don't forget to like, share, and leave us a comment. We love hearing from all of our wonderful listeners, whether you're listening live tonight or you're listening on the downloaded podcast, wherever Mm -hmm. you might be. Don't forget, you can always write us any time of the week, whether we're on air or off, down the garden path podcast at hotmail.com or visit us at our websites. You can find Joanne at www.downthenumber2earth.ca and you can find myself at www.naturalaffinity.ca. So we've got June in the garden mm-hmm. on topic tonight and we've got some more questions hopping uh, in. Yeah. Do you want me to read Monica? So Monica's asking... Um, let you catch a breath. <laughs> um, <laughs> hi, listening again. Thank you, Monica. Um, my soil is basically clay. I want to plant. After I dig a hole, should I add sand to that particular spot for future draining? Thank you. Um, so, question. yeah, it's a popular, I think that's a popular belief that, um, you know, um, that that sand helps. What are you? What are your thoughts? You know what? I think the answer to all of our uh, soil <laughs> amendment questions basically comes down to uh, active, like a living compost, a compost right. of some sort. Yeah, so I'm with you. Yeah. So Monica clay is the only particle in soil because soil is only sand, silt, and clay that will exchange and hold nutrients. Um, so sand and silt have will break down into clay and, and other nutrients, but clay is what holds our nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, etc., for the plants to eat. But it is shaped like little bricks, so it does become compact. Sand is a good thought because it is larger than clay, very much larger than clay, um, if you look at it under the microscope, and it's nice and rounded. Um, so theoretically, it should you know bump all those bricks out of the way. But compost is the best thing to do. Because or manure, or manure, right? Like something manure. that's orga- organic. So really, you're wanting to, to change, like something that's going to break down, right? Right. So you want those organics. You want the irregular shaped particles to get in between the bricks. But more importantly, to amend it over time, you want those organisms in there because as they go through their life cycle, they release humic substances. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they encourage that clay particles to be pushed aside. So they release um, calcium um, cations in between the clay particles and it separates them. And then in other soils that are very silty or very sandy, again, adding organic matter to get that humus structure. Humus also will hold nutrients. 
but those organisms release those humic substances, which bind everything back together and give you that nice black crumbly forest soil again. So anything, Monica, that is high in organic matter, like Joanne said, a nice composted um, cow or sheep manure or a combination mm -hmm. of both, or again, something, any of the composts like your um, you know, sea compost or your forest compost, depending on who provides. Yeah, it. or mushroom compost. It depends mushroom on mushroom compost. I know I sent my son to get some uh, at the just the grocery store. You know, the garden centers in the parking lot, and they yeah. only had sh they had sheep. So I was like, I was like, get you know this, this or this, and and you know, like I I said, get compost, and he goes mushroom, and I'm like, whichever compost they have, I said, or manure, whichever manure they have, and he said he came back and he goes, they didn't, you know, that's all they had was sheep. So you know, so it depends on where you're from but um yeah so that's so think about it that way yeah and same with no matter when you're planting but no matter what type of soil you have but especially with clay I mean going with more of the organic uh the sand is is really you know it, in theory you think it would work but it's really still not adding anything super beneficial to to the soil so I hope that helps Monica yes excellent thank you for writing us in Monica, we really appreciate it. We've got some other listener questions. Um, Hannah's written in. Uh, hello to Matt, Joanne, and staff. Uh, Gary's the only other one. <laughs> I know. I'm like, <laughs> but thank staff? you, Gary. Hey, your Hannah. staff. Did you? Know? <laughs> I feel so lifted up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. That's so cute. <laughs> yes. Um, but Hannah also says, uh, "Have you ever done a show on water gardens?" Watch a video on this and they look amazing. And they really are. Uh, the video did not really explain a lot of things. So I thought maybe you can or had done a show on this. Thank you very much. Enjoy your week. Well, thank you very much, Hannah, as well. You too enjoy your week. Just as you think of that, um, we did do a show um, with Ernest uh, Williams. or Yeah, Ernest Williams from Aquascape, Inc., uh, so they're all about water gardens, creating yeah. pondless waterfalls, full out pond. You imagine it, Hannah, and Aquascape has the tools and all the equipment to do it. So shout out to Aquascape. Love them. They're in Canada as well as um, the United States. So they're all North America. Aquascapeinc.com is their website. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, and then I was just kind of looking back to see if I could name an episode yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, I'm also wondering, because that's what I thought she originally meant. But then now I'm wondering if she means like a rain garden, too. And I'm wondering if that we did one of those not. with Sean, James, because he's kind of infamous with um, rain gardens. So that's another thing. So, yeah, we've got some some past shows for you, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, I'm having difficulty just bringing them up quickly. Um, okay. But maybe if I come up to them again, Hannah, we can... We'll definitely put them in the, any of them in the show notes. We'll put a link to the Aquascape as well as Sean James's uh, rain gardens and all that information there too. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So if you just Google again, down the garden path podcast and find this episode on your favorite podcast provider, uh, okay. as well as YouTube, we'll have all those extra links there for you. But did yeah, you find something? I found water garden trends um, with Ernest. So that's one of the uh, episodes. So you could search for water garden trends, um, fusion garden. That's a bit about, we did that with Chris Ray with a landscaper talking a bit about water management on your property. Um, so yeah, so we have a few, quite a few actually. 
so yeah, water garden trends. Nice. Yeah, and now so I what? just search for I just search for rain on my garden on my website. So uh, so yeah, those ones been brought up. But thank you for that question, Michelle. Um, it was Hannah, but that's Hannah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so so Karen has written in. I think a different Karen has written in. Good okay. evening, garden show. This may be a bit of a design question, which. Uh, we love, uh, mm -hmm. but is it okay to mix foliage? Should we keep certain flowers together or can we mix breeds of flowers when planting? I'm not sure uh, if one type of plant could harm another, thanks. Oh, oh yes, foliage is my favorite topic, especially for shade, but yeah, I mean, no, I don't think there's anything that foliage to foliage could be harmful no the um, only thing i think of is like the black walnut with mm, juglone yeah um, and it's a hormone that the roots release into the soil and certain plants don't tolerate it and it damages their roots and kills them um mm. so unless you have one of those karen hanging out in your yard you are pretty much safe to uh, mix and match however you like you can definitely mix foliage Definitely look at the different textures, bold foliage, medium foliage, mm -hmm. fine foliage. Their textures, their shapes, their colors will all give you different plays mm -hmm. uh, in your garden. If you've got small spaces, remember using finer foliage gives your mind an illusion of greater depth. If you've got bigger spaces, you can use bolder textures to create smaller rooms within the garden or make something really far away seem a little visually closer. Uh, the sky is the limit yeah same thing yeah. with the flowers you can mix all of them especially when you're mixing you know shrubs and perennials everybody's going to bloom at different time and mm -hmm. you're going to have a number of uh, you know plants within their own same genus that are all related but as well as different genuses and species that will all play together and when you're mixing flowers think of as well the type of flower that you have so there are different shapes of flowers umbels um you know, versus heads or clusters versus just the classic like star-like flower, yeah. right? Yeah. Mix all of those together, spikes, and it'll create a whole other layer to your texture as well mm -hmm. as your flower color and interest. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And my <laughs> two cents about foliage is also um, there are many shrubs that I love because they do, I always say they do two things yeah. and that they have green when they're flowering in the spring, their foliage is green, but come fall when they're no longer fall flowering, they're green foliage turns red. So little Henry Sweetspire comes to mind. Um, some of the Dutzias, right? The Yuki Cherry Dutzia, you know, spring flowering, but then the foliage goes red in the fall. So that's something too to add a different dimension in, in as far as foliage goes. We could talk about foliage, right? I love oh, it. That's and shade tends to, I mean, that's one thing I tend to people tell people um, shade is more about the color of different foliage. You know, when you get into Japanese forest grass and Japanese painted ferns and, and Sun King Aurelia that, you know, it's all about foliage, very little about flower. So, um, so that's where you can have a lot of fun. That's more, right. We've got Lots of questions. So of you questions. guys, as usual, love our, our month in the garden episode. So thank you so much uh, for writing in. As we leave Karen's, I just, it's reminded me of, of our book and our, uh, you know, design, design favorites for June. You picked uh, the flowering dogwood. So like mm -hmm. you were saying, beautiful white blossoms uh, in the spring and uh, nice shaped fruit in the summer, but beautiful burgundy fall color. And yes. I have the strobe which is again is green, 
nice pink flowers in the spring, early summer, and then all different coppers and reds and burgundy. So yeah, there's just a name, a couple of plants that we love, Karen. Yes, for sure. And the dogwood is outside my window and it's just starting to bloom. (sighs) And I just, I just love it. It's just so beautiful. (laughs) Um, So yes. So, um, and we did have earlier in the show, um, Sean wrote in about grow bags. So that's a great question. Um, So do grow bags work and are they good for the environment? So I think he's referring to those, you know, almost like, um, I think they're often made out of recycled plastic uh, bottles. Um, I've got some, I definitely love them. Uh, I love how portable they are. And you use them too on your, on your, or you, uh, is yours, like, is yours plastic or fabric? Yeah, I just reached for mine. No, mine is like a woven um, fabric, like a polyester, but like you had said, a lot of them are being now made out of recycled, like ocean plastics into like a a fabric or a polyester type material. Um, Yeah, Sean, they work. Um, Mm -hmm. I love them. It's great. One of the uh, things that we like about them too is as the roots try to penetrate the fabric, roots don't like to be exposed to air. So it's called like they get air pruned. So their tips die. They don't die into the bag, but they die and prevent them from coming out. So those points cause new breaks in the root. So you get more fibrous tips because they're constantly dying as they reach the end Mm -hmm. and they have to fill in the other spaces inside. So they work um, good for the environment, definitely because we're using them out of recycled materials. And eventually a lot of them just break down. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've had a pocket one, I think over five years that's been on my fence. I've screwed to the fence that had, you know, two grommets, It's probably two feet long and it's like a pocket and we put lettuce, we grow lettuce in it. And, uh, you know, it has certainly outlasted a lot of lettuce, let me just tell you, but I don't take <laughs> it in for the winter. They just sits there. So, um, and I think some of the big pots tend, you could also get big ones like let, that are like a, you know, a big circular pot with handles. And those are nice because they, you can put something larger in it or put, but they are lighter to move around. Cause normally, um, you know, if you're doing t- like a big tomato plant and you're putting it in a big plastic pot, then they're like, they're pretty heavy when they're fit wet and full of soil. So these are pretty light and I love the versatility. So from those grow bags that with handles or on a wall, like to, d- to do like a vertical surf, uh, like, you know, pockets. So you can do it on fences and on the side of a shed. Like, I, I just think they're great. I really do. Yeah. You can't see it because I, you're not on Zoom with us, everybody, but um, <laughs> I reached over to feel one of mine. And yeah, I have a 10 gallon uh, one. They're, they're huge. Uh, so yeah. lightweight with handles. Um, yeah. So you can grow veggies and all sorts of everything, Sean, in your grow bags. Move them around, empty yeah, the yeah. soil as compost, fold them up and put them away. Mm. Uh, or leave them out like joints. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of veggies, Sue is written in. Mm. Hello, garden people. Um, any or is June now the time to plant most veggies? I will be new to this. Yeah. I mean, I think um it's the safest time, Sue. You know, the keeners are out there and scooping up their, you know, obscure varieties in March or in May or you know, starting from seed, but there's still plenty available at garden centers. And uh um, so yeah, now is a perfect time. We should be past our frost now that's May 29th. Um, you can, you know, start working either start out if you're going to start out new, start out in a container if you want, you know, a, like a grape tomato or cherry tomato or jalapeno peppers are very easy to grow in a container, you know, so pick some easy ones. We do talk about, the, you know, vegetables in our book as well and on which ones to kind of start. And um, yeah, um, you'll, you'll have a blast. Yeah, you really will. It is much simpler 
you're going to buy it and plant it and harvest it like any other other yeah. plant but much easier for sure. Yeah, lots so, of information online and and lots of information on past shows as well. We've talked a lot about veg growing veggies, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're just starting to put ours out ourselves. Mhm. So, easy mm-hmm. to go. Easy to go. Um yeah, so what else do we have? We've still got lots of listener questions. Who we else do, do we have yeah. Here? Here's Katie. Love the show tonight. Oh. Great advice. Is it possible or do you know of anyone that has ever just grown their roses in pots? Would they do well in those containers? So great question, Katie. And they do. The problem here in Ontario is the winter, right? Yes. And you and I do know someone who has successfully overwintered the knockout series of roses. Um, Larry. Uh, Larry. Or Larry. Larry. Mm-hmm. Larry. Yeah. He lives much further north than we do. Um, almost like a half a zone north or just because he's higher up um but he has knockout roses that he has in some not like super you know uh commercial size planters at the end of his driveway but decent sized ones uh but they were fairly hardy and they were able to overwinter at the end of his driveway with with no protection he once told me so definitely but like joanne said we usually get that freeze thaw happening and that's what wakes Mm -hmm. up our roots and then freezes them and crushes them um, and that's tends to be the issue. So if you can put them in the ground, great. Or if you want them in the, ro- the pot, try to protect them like an, um, a tender grass, like your purple fountain grass that you want to keep. Bring them into the mm-hmm. garage or against the side of a house where they can be protected in overwinter and mm-hmm. stay cold and stay frozen and stay asleep. Right. Or you, or you can dig a hole. So do it before the ground freezes. But you mm-hmm. can also take a pot um, and dig a hole and put the pot in the ground and just cover it with some leaves and stuff. And that's another way. And so then in the spring, you can pop that back out again. And that's another great tip for even um, if we've got listeners who uh, haven't planted their containers yet, you know, shrubs, think consider shrubs for your containers. You're just buying one thing. It's going to put on a a great show, like little lime hydrangea, little quick fire hydrangea, some of the dutzias, you know, that are going to be really compact and grow really cool in a container and then you can overwinter it by just putting you know um putting any renters out there that don't you know want to spend a lot on somebody else's garden then you can just dig a hole in the ground put your pot in for the winter and then in the spring pop it back out again and pop it back in your container so that's a nice little tip for anyone as including roses so um so yeah hope that helps katie hopefully yes and thank you very much for the question thank you everybody Mm -hmm. for the question um, we have a handful left, uh, but don't forget, even after the show, if you come up with more questions down the Garden Path podcast is where you can write us at any time. Mm-hmm. Who do we have next? Uh, I see Ray is here. Hi, Matt and Joanne. Any tips on planting bulbs? I want to try it. Well, Ray, um, as far as bulbs, you might find some summer bulbs like glads and dahlias and cannas and callas right now always just planting them as per the instructions on uh the package it'll give you their depth and their spacing push comes to shove if you don't have that and someone kind of gave you one you can always just kind of plant it about two to three inches below the soil surface and let them come up unless it's something like an iris that likes to have its uh rhizome or tuber just kind of sitting above the soil and sunbathing but other than that mm-hmm. just planting them a few inches below the soil but it is a little too early remember if you're thinking right tulips and hyacinths and other things right now you know you if you have you know leftover pot you're going to bury them at 
close to six inches as possible. And they're going to become available in late August, early September. And we're going to talk all about that. I'm yeah. sure when we get to September in the garden. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Ray, it depends on which kind. So summer plant bulbs you can plant now. Um, if you're the ones that are blooming now, you would plant those in the fall and they need the winter to bl- bloom in the spring. So just to clarify that for you. Thank you. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Andrew's got a good question, too. He says, uh, what is meant by hardiness zone? So and that's kind of a moving target these days, thanks to climate climate change. But uh, Matt, do you want to? You know, yeah. I'll, I'll look up the glossary in our book, but there you go. <laughs> hardy, hardiness zone. Yeah, Andrew, hardiness zone, different regions have a different hardiness zone. And you'll see the hardiness or the zone just as zone on the back of your plant. And it's basically a minimum. Usually we'll see it for overwintering perennials. The one that you'll see is the minimum average temperatures, cool temperatures over the winter that that area gets. The colder those temperatures get, the lower the zone gets. So Winnipeg uh, gets is a zone three. We're a little warmer here in the GTA. We're zone five B six A. As you get out into North Carolina, you're looking at like zone eight, um, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have a warmer, the higher the number, the warmer their average winter temperatures is. Are right. sorry. So yeah. if you are in for example, Winnipeg, you're going to plant something that is at least zone three or lower, if you, but not higher. If it's zone four, it won't survive your winters. Right. If you're in zone five, six A, like we are, we're looking for something zone five, six A or lower. Lower. When you see it, we're going to mostly see the USDA zone, so the American rating for you are zones. If you're in Canada, you might also still see USDA. If you're looking, thinking of the Canadian zones, Canada is the USDA zone minus one. So at the very top, the Arctic Circle for Canada is zero. But USDA, it's one. So the way, way up there, it's one or zero in Canada. So it depends on where you go. Yeah, I'm just going to read this line from our book that you, you, Matt did a great job in our book, uh, Down the Garden Path, a step-by-step guide to your Ontario garden um, in the glossary section. That was Matt. And so hardiness zone information is only a guideline to the survivability of a plant over a large geographical area. So I hope, Andrew, that helps you understand that. Um, in addition to all the other stuff that Matt said. Um, so yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, so thank you for asking and joining us once again, Andrew. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Jane, this is a good question too. Um, and I don't know that we've ever talked about them. Um, I live in Toronto. Can you give me information on Boston ferns? Have you had experience with them? And I can get, oh, uh, I can get some for free. So I'm asking, thank you. So yes, I've had fr- a good friend. She overwintered three this past winter overwintered and they looked amazing in in March in her fireplace in her house and then I was at her house uh, uh this weekend outside and they're looking a little sad so they but they, I think they'll bounce back right but not, Boston ferns are great yeah Boston ferns are lovely it's that classic hanging house plant fern that you see long strap like fronds uh, of compound leaves super easy 
they prefer full shade to partial sun. The full sun, they they will survive, but they kind of go like a light green. Whereas mm-hmm. in the part sun to full shade, they'll be a rich green. And mm-hmm. the newer fronds will be lighter green. But they're easy. Just keep them evenly moist. Keep them uh, moist so they don't lose all their little leaflets. I, I'm amazed that she kept the three of them over winter. Because one too. of the issues is the humidity, especially up yeah. here in Toronto, uh, we're overwintering them, especially a nice specimen, Jane. Uh, we just lose them to our dry houses. Mm-hmm. They just shatter like glass. All yeah. the little leaflets. So that's amazing. And we'll have to, uh, you'll have to find out what her trick is. <laughs> yeah, she did. I was really impressed. I really was. And she was very excited too. So they can't, but I know they're often like everything else where you get it through. Like I, you know, I did the a coleus over winter and then, you know, ca- come, you know, end of april they were like dead and shriveled up like they just kind of peter out like you really have to be on them um but if you can get them for free and they don't cost you anything they're worth um they're worth it and they do they are kind of like a ficus too though when you do if you are going to try to overwinter them when you do bring them in they will shed they'll kind of like object a bit right and and kind of shed and protest and then they kind of leave back out again but um yeah it's a great green you know i i think they're better in baskets or in containers um not necessarily putting into the ground um but it's great texture and and the fact that they can grow in in the shade um or in hanging baskets like on a porch um or deck you know mixing three very small four inch ones with some terrenia and um, some purple tradescantia the upright version not the little inch plant that's hanging one and they make a beautiful little Mm. textural thing so that's great i think as we're running out of question do we have one more question there we do from brian uh, always love Joanne and Matt's show. Thank you, Brian. This may sound silly to you gardening professionals, but what does pinch your plants mean? Ah, good. Qu- that's a cute one. Uh, yeah. So pinching, ba- pinching them back. Basically, it's cutting off the tip, the growing tip, for example, on your peppers. Let, you know, three or four sets of leaves grow. Pinch off the tip. And then from those sides, new branches come in. So by it's like you're pruning. Cuts off mm-hmm. all their growing tips, causes them to fatten up and get bigger. Yeah, fill out as opposed to being leggy. Right. So pinching mm-hmm. is just an individual plant uh, or plants, and then pruning or shaping or shearing like a hedge. Same thing, but it's just a different term on a bigger scale. So mm-hmm. hopefully that helps as well. And I think that reaches the end as we get to yes. the last couple minutes. So thank you, everybody, for the wonderful questions. Uh, those are all things you're going to be doing in June in the garden, plus all the lawns. Uh, don't forget to check out our book, Down the Garden Path Podcast, step-by-step guide to your, quote, Ontario garden. But it's uh, great, great tips and tricks for wherever you might be in North America. Stay tuned next week. We're joined by Sarah Oster-Lee and we're taking another look at growing and producing cannabis. So Mm -hmm. join us next week. And until then, take care. Thank you, everybody. You're listening here on Reality Radio 101 to uh, Down the Garden Path and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Down the Garden Path with your host, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing, right here on Reality Radio 101.